Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Linux and Open Source News Show. I'm your host, Nick, and this is a podcast where we discuss everything that happened in the Linux, open source, privacy, and open web world during the past week. In this episode, we have a scam problem on the canonical and Ubuntu Snap Store with cryptocurrency apps, well, at least one cryptocurrency app, stealing about 500,000 euros worth of Bitcoin. We have the warp terminal coming to Linux. We have a new API being proposed to handle all the RGB on Linux. We have the cosmic desktop already preparing to get a spin for Fedora. We have a new hack fest on HDR and color management. We've got Intel being caught cheating on benchmarks and a lot of other things, including some massive potential gains for Linux gaming. So as always, if you want to learn more about any of these topics, I left all the links that I visited and used to create this show down in the show notes. And if you want this show to continue, you can support it by using any of the links in the show note as well. If you become a Patreon member or a YouTube member for the YouTube channel, you will get access to a daily Linux and open source news recap in the same format as this one, but every day from Monday to Friday. So, now that this is out of the way, let's get started. So, we're going to begin with the Snap Store. It's the app distribution center for Ubuntu and basically just Ubuntu. Some distros implement Snap out of the box, but they are not that many compared to distros that package Flatpak. Still, the Snap Store has a lot of applications, arguably more than what Flathub has. And it's used by a lot of people because Ubuntu is still a very, very popular distro. But the Snap Store seems to have a scam app problem. Alan Pope, formerly of the canonical Snapcraft team, wrote a very detailed analysis of what happened recently on that store, where an app masquerading as a popular crypto wallet was able to be published and to steal about half a million dollars in Bitcoin from at least one user. There might be more crypto theft going on that hasn't been reported, but at least there's one confirmed. So what happened was that an app called Exodus was published in early February on the Snap Store, and the listing looked legitimate. They used the official logo for the app, the official organization name, some marketing tags that felt legit. It looked like a regular official Exodus wallet app, apart from the fact that the app wasn't verified. It didn't have that little tick. The Snap package was also listed as safe, meaning that it did use the Snap sandbox. Unfortunately, this package was not official and it was a scam. Alan Pope conducted an investigation on the package itself. First, he found that the Snap package was not even mentioned on the official website for the official Exodus wallet. They do have a DEB or an archive for Linux, but there was no mention of the Snap. In itself, this isn't necessarily a red flag. A few developers choose to try out a Flatpak or a Snap, but don't necessarily talk about it on their website until they get enough feedback and they fix the issues that could come from using a sandboxed package. So not having the Snap listed on the Exodus website wasn't necessarily an indication that the app on the Snap Store was a scam. But there were other differences. Uh, first, the official app uses Electron, but the scam app uses Flutter. 
But the real indication that this was a scam is that the first thing that is asked of the user when you open that app is to enter your 12 words passphrase to recover your wallet. This is something that you should never do. Even the official Exodus wallet website tells you that they will never ask you for that recovery passphrase. Now looking deeper, Alan found that the app would very likely use that passphrase to access the wallet and then use an API to empty it. He found out all of this by running the snap in a VM and looking at the various calls that the snap tried to make when entering some garbage data. Now the app has since been quarantined by Canonical, of course, and it shouldn't be visible anymore on the snap store. The issue is, how did this app make it through the snap store validation process? And the answer is, it was pretty easy. All the scammers needed was a Snap Store account, which is super easy to create. You can do it with any old email address and you can just publish your app. You can register the name of the application and publish it. And since the Snap was sandboxed, because it didn't need to not be sandboxed to, to scam people, there was no human validation involved. The package was just published as is because it checked out with the automated checks that the Snap Store has in place. Now, contrary to a bunch of previous problems that happened on the Snap Store that basically went unanswered, where Canonical just quarantined the app and did nothing more, didn't communicate that there was a scam or a problematic app, this has happened before. This time, since it was crypto, well, there was discussions. Uh, there were discussions from people saying, should we just ban crypto apps from the Snap Store? And so Mark Shuttleworth, the founder of Canonical, answered that question. And he said that he agrees that cryptocurrencies are, and I quote here, largely a cesspit of ignoble intentions, end quote, he still doesn't want to ban crypto apps from the Snap Store. And the reason is that at least with the Snap Store, you do get some security advantages over a regular dev that anyone would install from the internet or an app image or just an archive that you would download and run. Uh, and so he wants to allow these apps in the Snap Store, at least legitimate crypto apps in the Snap Store, because if he doesn't, Linux users might just resort to getting them from untrusted sources. Now, of course, in this specific fake Exodus wallet story, this didn't amount to anything. The sandbox did not prevent the app from stealing crypto because it just needed an internet connection to do so, and snaps do not restrict that. Now, Mark also started a new thread to discuss adding stronger identity verification for all Snap publishers to at least make sure that when an app is published, it is from who they say it is. Now, he's proposing a few options. The first one would be to require a credit card to publish on the Snap Store, and they would then use some kind of industry standard technology like what banks use to verify that the person publishing the app is truly who they say they are using the credit card data. Of course, you could also steal a credit card from someone working at the company you're trying to imitate, so he's also discussing maybe charging a fee on that credit card and waiting a few months to see if it goes through or if it's revoked. But this would be problematic as it would add a long delay for publishing an application, and also he doesn't really want to charge anyone for publishing on the Snap Store, and I think he's right on that one. Now, in the end, what's important is that Canonical knows about the problem and they want to tackle it. And they're asking for feedback on how to handle this issue to make sure that when you download something from the Snap Store, you're reliably confident that it's not going to scam you. 
Now, apparently also Canonical started not just quarantining uh, fake snaps or malicious applications, they're also now pushing completely empty snaps to erase them. Because before, while a quarantine snap could no longer be downloaded by anyone, people who had installed it previously and might not have been aware that this was a scam would still have them on their computer so they could still run it. Now they're gonna push auto-updates that are just empty snaps that will erase the malicious app from your disk, meaning that users who apply their updates should at least no longer have these malicious apps active on their system. Although it might feel weird for users who don't really follow any announcement or communication that Canonical might have made to install something, try to run it and find that either the launcher doesn't exist anymore or that the app just doesn't open anything. Still, as a stopgap solution, it works, and it's good to see that the issue isn't ignored or unanswered, as it might have been in the past for previous similar problems. It is going to be a real challenge to handle all these malicious apps in the Snap Store or even on FlatHub, because as these formats and app distribution platforms get more popular, they are going to be targeted by scam and malicious things. And so they need to find a solution to ensure that when users download something from these stores, it's actually what the app says it is, but also... Even if it's something that you might not have heard about, it's something trustworthy. And sometimes the sandbox doesn't prevent a scam from happening. So I hope we can find a solution that doesn't require developers to pay anything, because that would seriously harm the success of these platforms on Linux. And in my opinion, Flathub and or the Snap Store are crucial to the success of Linux on the desktop. We need one major single distribution platform. It doesn't mean it has to be the only one, but it has to be the default one where users can find all the applications that they want to install because, well, right now, handling distro packages that are out of date or trying to add PPAs or finding various different packaging formats that you have to tack on top of your distro is not a good experience. We need a unified one. Distro packages are just not the solution. They're not well-maintained, they're outdated, and they cannot ship every single app out there. The AUR is not the solution because you need to read the install script to know what you're doing. So Flatpak and Flathub or the Snap Store are the solution, but they need to be secure and they need to be free. If you ask developers of open source applications to pay a monthly or yearly or just a one-time fee to publish, they will just not do it. So yeah, we need that to be free and we need that to be safe if we want the Linux desktop to succeed. Now, since we're on the topic, Flathub is moving towards that same goal, to be a more reliable and more trustworthy platform to distribute applications. And so they've made their automatic build validation much more complete because it now includes more checks to ensure that the app is built correctly, meaning that some applications that used to pass these automatic checks will now automatically fail it. So developers will have to fix a few of the issues with the metadata of their app, of their app or how it is shipped and compiled to make sure that they can actually publish to Flathub. Now, of course, they have a complete page for documentation to let people know what they need to fix, what they need to implement, whether they're using Flathub's build service or they're uploading their apps directly and manually to the platform. 
They've also implemented a few more checks when an app adds or removes permissions in an update or when they change their names. Because you could previously publish an app that required basically no permission and had a very legitimate name, and then with an update you could change that name to look like something else and you could require more permissions that the user would have to grant, and so you could basically become a malicious app even if you didn't start this way. Now, if you change those permissions through an update, or if you change your name, this will now prompt a manual review of the application, to avoid an app getting tons of installs and then suddenly adding a ton of permissions and trying to grab some data off of users' computers. Now, FlatHub also improved the metadata handling. They moved to using libAppStream to handle all of this, meaning that developers can now offer small videos on top of the screenshots that they had on their listings, or they can specify the supported screen sizes for mobile devices if their app is adaptable, if it works on mobile devices and on desktops. So it's really good stuff. FlatHub is shaping up to be a solid place for developers to publish their apps. There's still the initial publication of a flat pack on FlatHub that could be malicious. Hopefully the new checks, uh, the, the new build validation things might handle that a bit better. But at least if you try to update your app in the future to require more stuff, well, there's going to be a manual review and people might find out that the app has become a malicious application. So... Hopefully, with support for payments coming soon, fingers crossed, uh, I think FlatHub has all it needs to be the platform for Linux app distribution. Now, we have a new cool application making its way onto Linux. You might have heard of it. It's called Warp, and it's basically a terminal app on steroids. Uh, it supports hardware acceleration, collaborative work, letting you share commands and groups of commands with other users. Uh, you get also features that you would find in an IDE generally, like multiple cursors, auto-completion, syntax highlighting, and more. And previously, this app was only available for macOS, but they just introduced the Linux version as well. It's available as a deb for Ubuntu and maybe even some Debian versions, or as an app image. It comes with all the features that the app currently has on macOS, so you're not left out or you're not getting the inferior version. It apparently shares 98% of its code base among Linux and macOS. But it is not an Electron app. It's developed using Rust, and apparently they even implemented Cosmic Text, which is a library to handle the display of text on Linux using Rust, uh, developed by System76 for their Cosmic Desktop. So it's pretty fun to see that they're already implementing stuff from a desktop that isn't released at all. Now, apparently the Linux version will also have better performance than the macOS version, because in porting the app to Linux, they actually implemented a few Linux-specific performance optimizations. They will probably pass those onto macOS as well at some point, but for now the Linux version performs better. Now, do be warned, Warp is not an open-source application. Developers say that they have plans to open-source the whole UI and maybe at some point the whole client but their server component will stay proprietary and closed source. And yes, you heard me right, there is a server component. To use Warp, you need to log in to either a free account or a paid account if you want to unlock more features, which will probably deter a few of you because we already have tons of cool terminal apps on Linux. Maybe not as powerful as Warp, but probably more than enough for a lot of people. 
Now, apparently their privacy policy seems okay according to OMG Ubuntu, but who knows how this might change. So be warned, if you want to use it, you have to create an account and then inevitably give some data to the company. If you're a fan of AI integrations as well, which personally I am not, but you might be, Warp also supports that. Uh, they will try to generate commands based on normal, regular, conversational text. So you could, for example, type in your terminal, please install Audacity or compile this program in this directory, and it will try to generate a command to do just that. Now, if I'm honest, it does look like a very powerful terminal client if you do dev work. I think for most users who only install stuff, like you run a sudo apt install something, or you use pacman in the terminal and you run neofetch and btop, it's just not super interesting to move to that. But if you do dev work, it looks like a very solid app, and it looks really good as well. Now, whether you like its non-open source model, whether you like its AI integration, or the need to use an account, that is up to you. But at least it's nice to see that our platform is being targeted by relatively popular applications. It's, it's always nice to have those come, even if we don't use them. Now, if you like all your tacky lights and blinking stuff on your computers, uh, Linux might not have been the best experience until now, and I'm, I'm talking about RGB. Uh, but you'll be happy to know that we might gain a dedicated kernel API to handle all these complex RGB setups and devices. It's being worked on by Tuxedo Computers, which, full disclosure, they are a regular sponsor of my videos on my YouTube channel, but they did not ask me to mention this specific piece of news. They don't know I'm making this podcast and they didn't even tell me they were working on that. So an engineer from Tuxedo has been talking with kernel developers and with the open RGB maintainers to try and implement a dedicated kernel interface to handle all the complex or simple RGB devices that a lot of computers seem to come with these days. Of course, it's not out of the goodness of their heart, they probably hope to make it simpler for themselves to handle all the RGB backlight and light bars that they have on the devices that they themselves sell. But at least in the process, it will make things better for everyone, and it might make setting up RGB relatively simple with maybe a unified UI that you could use that uses this API to handle all of it. Now, the discussion is ongoing still, but it looks like the proposal is well received. There is some interaction there. So it would indeed be nice to have a unified system to handle all of that. Now, personally, I absolutely despise RGB on computers. I think it's a waste of power and of battery life. It adds a really tacky vibe to a computer. There is no tasteful way to do RGB. Even if you just do the exact same color with a light strip, it doesn't look good. You don't need that to run your computer. But it seems to be very popular with gamers. So at least if we can make sure that we can handle that properly, that is one more barrier that is being lifted for people to adopt Linux. Although... I'm not sure people were really taken aback by the lack of perfect RGB support on Linux previously, but maybe five people were just like, hey, no RGB, I'm not moving to that. So if we can fix it, that's good. Now, it looks like the Cosmic Desktop will not be limited to Pop! OS. There is already a proposition in the works to make a Fedora spin using it, which will be added to all the other Fedora spins for all the other desktops that already exist and are run by three people. They're currently evaluating, creating a Fedora special interest group, which is basically a, a 
community of people who will maintain and create desktop images using this specific desktop environment. So they would handle creating the RPM packages for Cosmic, because obviously if it's in Fedora, you need to package them as RPMs. They would promote that spin, even though we haven't seen much promotion from various spins that are not the GNOME spin or Silver Blue. But they would also contribute upstream to the Cosmic desktop, which is more interesting because it means the desktop would have a bigger user base and more contributors, so it doesn't just stay a full System76 project. And they would also create a Fedora Atomic variant running the Cosmic desktop, this being the umbrella under which Fedora publishes all their immutable distros. So the alpha of Cosmic will be coming in March, and the first stable version will probably come before the end of the year. I would personally expect it in September, maybe November. So I don't think it's too far-fetched to see a Fedora spin using Cosmic, either in October for Fedora 41, or in early 2025 for Fedora 42. And I think it's cool to see that there's already interest in using Cosmic outside of Pop! OS, because a desktop environment is only the first part of a good desktop experience. A desktop environment also needs support and a solid app ecosystem of applications that look at home on that desktop and make use of its features. So if we have more users through a Fedora spin, for example, for people who don't like an Ubuntu base, and if we have more contributors to the desktop as well, and more distros using it, chances are that apps will work harder to support its various APIs and features, and we'll also see more applications designed to look and work specifically within Cosmic, which I think is pretty cool. Now there is another hackfest plan to keep the momentum going on all the awesome work that is being done on adding HDR support on Linux, color management support on Linux, and also variable refresh rate, which is already in various states of implementation. I think KDE has a pretty full-featured implementation, and GNOME is still working on it, but it's probably not going to ship in GNOME 46. So Igalia will host this year's Hackfest in Spain in May, in the hope of making sure that things go smoothly for all of these developments and just gathering all the necessary parties and actors to talk about how they want to advance, how they want to create the APIs, how they want to implement a protocol for Wayland for this, and all that good stuff. Igalia is probably a good center to build around because they already work with AMD and Valve to implement HDR on the Steam Deck and I think variable refresh rate as well. So they are perfectly placed to host this hackfest and to coordinate efforts. And in the end, let's hope it results in just having one set of protocols for Wayland that everyone can implement. Because GNOME already started working on HDR and variable refresh rate, KDE also started on this, so hopefully they can pull their efforts together and have one single implementation that every other desktop that is generally less advanced than GNOME or KDE can then, like, well, they can just follow suit and implement that as well. And I really like seeing these sort of efforts. They are picking one area that needs to be created or that needs improvement, and they're focusing all their resources on it until it's done. I hope we can see the same sort of collaboration and dedication on future issues as well, so the Linux desktop can finally move forward not as one, but at least as a more concentrated and grouped effort. 
It looks like Intel has been cheating on benchmarks for a while. Uh, the Standard Performance Evaluation Corporation, also known as SPEC, just invalidated 2600 of their own benchmark results on their benchmark suite for Intel Xeon CPUs, which are generally found in servers. As after some investigation was done, they noticed that Intel was using compilers that specifically improved the performance on certain of their benchmarks, based on prior knowledge of the spec benchmark code. So basically what Intel did is learn how the benchmark was run, what it targeted in a CPU, and then they compiled their drivers specifically to be optimized for these specific use cases. Meaning that in benchmarks, the Intel Xeons were apparently 9% faster than they would be in real world use cases, which is basically cheating. And it isn't uncommon practice. Unfortunately, a bunch of mobile chip suppliers already did that in 2020. Qualcomm, Samsung, and MediaTek, basically everyone that's not making a chip for Apple, well, everyone that is not an Apple SoC, they, they always do that. So it's not a unprecedented thing, but it still sucks. Benchmarks are not the end-all be-all of performance, but they are very helpful to help compare products. Do you want to use an Epic CPU from AMD? Do you want to use a Xeon? Which one should you buy for your data center or your server farm? And if you only have benchmarks to rely upon, Intel CPUs might have looked like the better choice. Uh, but in fact, they probably were not. So it sucks, it's cheating, I hope Intel gets, like, I don't know, fined or excluded uh, from these benchmark solutions, I don't know, but yeah, it sucks. Please stop doing that, manufacturers, just, if you're not confident in your product, well, go back to the drawing board and make a better one, that's how things work. Now we also have some news about the future installer for OpenSUSE, which will replace the Yast, the old venerable installer and also setup tool that OpenSUSE uses and looks straight from the 90s. Uh, so when this new installer is ready, it will probably be better suited to the transition SUSE is planning to their ALP platform, which lets them build a variety of different distribution following dis different models and basically doesn't necessarily, not all of the distros built with ALP will have the necessary dependencies to run Yast. So by building a new one that is pretty much platform agnostic, they can make sure that all of their distros share the same installer, but also don't necessitate to add external dependencies that would weigh down certain distro models. So the plan is by mid-April to have the new architecture ready, based on cockpit, just like the new Fedora Anaconda installer. And this will let them remove a few limitations from the current installer. Now in July, they will then make the installer more autonomous. So you can do an unattended installation, which will be very useful for deployments on various computer fleets. And of course, the visual and UX part of the installer will also be revamped entirely compared to the current one with a much simpler and much more legible interface. Now, don't get too excited if you like installers. This one will probably not be ready for a while. It is poised to make its debut in 2025 with Leap 16. And personally, I think an installer is a good thing. 
I really wish they would pull efforts with other projects because right now we have a Fedora working on a new one, we have Ubuntu uh, finalizing their new one and revamping it, we have OpenSUSE working on this one, we have an Elementor OS installer, we have like distro agnostic installers, we have uh, the good old Calamares and a bunch of others. And do we really need all that many installers? I don't know, but at least replacing the one in OpenSUSE is crucial because it might be very powerful with a ton of options, but it's also really not user-friendly and super cumbersome, and it makes no effort to simplify things for beginners, which is probably why I think OpenSUSE is almost never mentioned as an option for Linux beginners, because just start with the installer and you'll immediately run away. It's just not user-friendly at all. Now this week we also got the release of Firefox 123, and I generally don't really talk about Firefox updates, but since they said that they want to focus on Firefox again, Mozilla said that they want to basically remove some of their workforce from various projects that are not super interesting uh, for consumers and focus more on making Firefox a good browser. I think it's interesting to talk about it when they do have some new features. Uh, for example, this time the built-in translation feature can now completely translate the page, including the titles uh, that might appear in tooltips and any text in the controls of the web page, including placeholder text, search boxes, and virtually every control that appear on a translated website, which will be very useful if you're trying to use a web app uh, on Firefox, but you don't speak the language it was written in. You can also now pick what the unified search bar suggests when you use it to search for something. It's the mega bar, URL bar combo uh, that you can use. And right now it recommends stuff from basically everything you do on the browser, but now you'll be able to disable a few things. Uh, for example, your browsing history, your bookmarks, your open tabs, or your search engines. So you won't get a bunch of stuff that you just don't care about. Firefox also implemented better controller support using EVDev. Uh, it's focused especially on DualShock 4 on Xbox 360 and Xbox One controllers. But it does mean that if you stream games from a game streaming service inside of Firefox, you will probably get a better controller experience. Now, they also fixed a few visual bugs for Ubuntu users. Uh, the theme apparently didn't play well in terms of contrast in certain areas. And if you're using Firefox on ARM devices, you will now be able to play 2K and 4K content on YouTube, provided that your hardware can actually decode that. And finally, Firefox implements video encoder on Linux, uh, so developers can now use the web codec standard uh, for Firefox users, and website developers can now apply audio cancellation to microphone inputs for Firefox users. So it looks like a solid release and it's good to see Firefox actually improving the browser with actual browser-related features. I hope this trend continues. I hope they keep improving on the engine and the various web features that it supports. I'm not sure that all of this work is the result of the new management at Mozilla. I think it happened too soon and these features were already in development before, but I think it's important to report on Firefox as it's improving because that's what everyone has been asking for Mozilla. So when they do it, we need to talk about it. Now, if your use of Linux is still dependent on a few Windows apps, or if you can't move to Linux because you need support for specific Windows applications, then you might want to give a try to the new version of Crossover, Crossover 24. It is now based on Y9.0, meaning that it's gonna have much, much better support 
for a ton of Windows applications, and the crossover developers called Code Weavers are actually one of the biggest contributors to the Wine project. If you don't know what crossover is, it's basically a commercial product and graphical user interface around Wine. Uh, you've got a dedicated UI to install various programs, manage them, and you also get commercial support for specific programs that crossover deems as compatible. So you can think of it as something like Bottles, uh, except that you have auto-installers baked in, you just click play and it's going to configure a new bottle and everything you need for that app to run well, and it also has commercial support. If some app stops working, then uh, obviously Crossover will do everything they can to restore its functionality. So in this new version, they have revamped the UI. You can now just drag and drop a Windows executable to start the install, or you can manually create launchers to, to launch standalone uh, EXEs from Windows, where previously you could only really run stuff that you installed through Crossover. And apparently Office 365 is now installable and will run with Crossover 24, meaning that if you absolutely need Microsoft Office on Linux and you cannot do with LibreOffice or OnlyOffice or, or FreeOffice or, I don't know, WPS Office or any other almost fully compatible Office suites we have on Linux, if you absolutely need Microsoft Office, well, Crossover will let you run it. Although only the 32-bit version will work reliably, apparently. Crossover is also hiring a bunch of developers and support positions if you want to code on Wine or if you want to help support this company. And they're also apparently offering a discount right now at the time I'm recording uh, to buy Crossover 24. And of course, if you buy that, you do support the development of Wine and in turn the development of Proton. Codeweavers has been one of the biggest contributors to Wine and they've actually worked with Valve as well to implement certain things inside of Wine that they wanted to use with Proton and to fix various issues. So if you absolutely need certain Windows apps, it might be worth checking on the crossover website if they have support for them, and if by buying the thing, you would also get commercial support for it. So if it breaks at some point, they will work as hard as they can to fix it. And full disclosure, I am not sponsored at all by Crossover. It's not an ad, it's not a commercial thing at all. It's just that I find it's a pretty great project for people who might hesitate to move to Linux because they absolutely need a Windows app. You can just check on their website, see if it's supported, and if it is, well, you can move to Linux and use Crossover to run it. And I think they also have a free trial which would let you see how well it runs uh, before you actually buy. So yeah, it's also kind of a feel-good option because you're actually supporting the Wine project that you might also be using to run a few games. And speaking of games, we're gonna finish this episode with the gaming news. So first, there is some progress on the proposed anti-sync driver for the Linux kernel. And this thing's aim is to better implement synchronization primitives in the same way as Windows implements them. Uh, because when you're running Windows programs or games, it expects a certain way of doing things. And right now we handle this with eSync or FSync, but these run in one thread, one process, which can become a bottleneck. So the NTSync driver would actually implement that as a fake virtual device in the kernel, and this would mean that it would have access to all the resources of the computer and would severely limit the bottleneck effect. And so they now contributed a v2 of this driver with a bunch of patches, they fixed what didn't work well, and they improved documentation as well. And this entire patch set 
is nothing to scoff at compared to regular wine. It brings huge FPS improvements for a lot of games. Uh, from 21% better FPS in Metro 2023, up to 678% better in Dirt 3, 196% in Resident Evil 2, or 34% in Total War Troy. And these are massive gains, and we can only hope that this patch set is reviewed and accepted in the kernel so we can all benefit from some pretty massive performance boosts. Okay, and uh, just sorry if you're starting to hear some rain. It's it's like pouring outside. It's it's a full storm that we have in France right now. But still, on that anti-sync driver topic, at that point, I would be very disappointed if the project was rejected. If it's because the code isn't good enough or if it needs work, sure, absolutely. But if it's being rejected on the basis of being an implementation of a Windows way of doing things that is optional and could be enabled or disabled with an environment variable or something, it would really suck. Now, I guess we could always get patched kernels from one source or another that implement this specific driver. Probably gaming distros would want to implement that at some point, but it would be much better if it was in the upstream kernel so everyone can benefit no matter the distribution that they're running. Now, still on the topic of drivers, it looks like the latest Nuvo drivers with the GSP firmware support and NVK are considered solid enough because in the next release of Mesa version 24.1, the developers want to push using Zinc and NVK instead of the native OpenGL drivers that Nuvo provides. Uh, Zinc is a sort of translation layer that will translate OpenGL instructions into Vulkan instructions. It basically implements OpenGL for devices that don't really have hardware support for it or that just don't have a native driver for it. So the fact that Mesa is planning to replace the already existing native OpenGL driver that is in Nuvo with Zinc and NVK is a very good indication that NVK is in a pretty good place right now. And there's also, of course, an environment parameter to use Zinc or not, meaning that you can still have control over that. If the older OpenGL driver worked better, you can do that. If you run a super stable distro, you might not want to move to that yet. So you could also enable uh, the older driver. It's very interesting because it basically means that NVK is considered better than the native NVCO drivers that are currently used for OpenGL. And personally, I cannot wait, I say this all the time, I cannot wait to use a fully open source stack on my NVIDIA GPU. This kind of stuff makes me very confident that when my distribution gets the latest kernel with the latest Nuvo drivers and gets the latest Mesa with NVK and its new compiler in it, it makes me very confident that when I get all of this, I will get a very solid experience with my NVIDIA GPU. Okay, so this will conclude this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you did, don't hesitate to leave ratings on whatever podcast platform you listen to it from. It always helps with uh, more people discovering the show. If you want to dive deeper into any of these topics, as always, all the links are in the show notes. And if you really enjoy the show and you want to help me make more of these podcasts, you can also support it using any of the links in the show notes as well. And as a reminder, if you become a Patreon member or a YouTube member on the YouTube channel, you will get daily episodes of the Linux and open source news. They're just like eight to 10 minutes long from Monday to Friday. And so you don't have to wait for the end of the week to get all your news. So thanks everyone for listening and I guess you will hear me in the next one next week. Bye.